Welcome to Smash the Class, a podcast that discusses topics in education from an anarchist perspective. This project is part of the Anarchist Pedagogies Network, which seeks to create a space for anyone interested in anarchism and education, regardless of their expertise or background. For our third episode, I'll be your host, Nicole, and I'll be joined by Carl Eugene Stroud. Carl is a tutor who teaches French, Spanish, and English online to students of different ages who all live in different locations around the world. His background is in narratology and literary theory. He's also part of a U.S.-based study group that has begun a project called Militant Kindergarten, which will be studying one of Especifismo's key texts and experimenting in the process of group learning for the next few months. Because this episode requires a little more upfront information, Carl studies and writes about the Latin American anarchist current known as Especifismo. He previously reached out to the APN and sent a few texts our way, which we've since posted on our website. These include How Do You Say Especifismo in English, The Tendency to Learn, and Teachers, A Question of Class. All of these, along with any other mentioned pieces, will be listed in our show notes, and I very much recommend that you go check them out whenever you have time. We'll be discussing a huge range of subjects, including, but not limited to, digital pedagogies and learning spaces, the connection of study groups to praxis, defending the learning space, and obviously a specifismo. There's a lot, but it was such a great conversation. That said, I hope you enjoy this episode. my god i have been teaching all day and i am just dumb yes i was i was feeling that before like like that like uh we're at such different parts of the day that like yeah i know just like after a day of being in front of faces your brain is just fried and so i can relate like i know where you're at maybe that's where we should start where it's like so you do a lot of digital learnings so how do you kind of cope with this yeah that's my brain just shut off that's good. I think that like, uh, uh, yeah, for, for me, like the, the digital learning, like takes a lot of the stress off of like, uh, the social aspect of interacting with people. So like that really helps me personally, but I also find it sometimes lets me go a little bit deeper with students because like, if we're really working on something hard, like foreign language, then kind of having some of the social aspects stripped away, it can really help, you know, like people, people do feel more comfortable at home and we are really used to screens, but it doesn't mean we can't use those to like kind of challenge us. And yeah, so it's almost like kind of compartmentalizing that a bit. I'm kind of envious. Sometimes it would be nice to get out of the classroom. Like, cause um, I noticed when I was doing online school, as, as hard as it is to kind of like switch from like, you know, the traditional into the online because of the, you know, the structures that are there. Um, like when I was offline or when I was offline, when I was online, um, you could actually start these conversations and because you're not, con- you're not in this constrictive environment. Well, well like, uh, yeah, with the, the classrooms, you end up falling into just patterns that end up being classroom management so much of your energy just goes into like getting through the time 
oh my god <laughs> definitely um for me like i am all, I, that was one of the things like literally yesterday i was sitting there thinking because like the kids were making all kinds of noises in the middle of my creative writing class like i just let them go and write and I just had like this weird, uh, well, not a weird thought, but like the immediate thought of like, I should make them be quiet. <laughs> and it was just that thing of like, but why? Why should I make them be, actually go and be quiet? But like, what are some areas where you're able to go pretty deep with like student learning? Like you said, with languages. Well, so I actually started doing more digital uh, work before the the pandemic. So this, I've already been working strictly online for almost four years now. And, um, at first, like I was, I was definitely a curmudgeon, like any, any other classroom teacher. Like, uh, I was at the time working as an adjunct and, uh, before that I had, uh, been a language, uh, like private tutor. And so I'd worked with students one-on-one -on -one, and then I'd worked in classrooms and, uh, yeah, I just had this sort of bias about like this thing about like, oh, well, it's not really interacting with a person and the kind of, you know, typical things you would uh, expect to hear that. I mean, like, I'm so used to hearing them. It's hard to actually like kind of regurgitate a specific one uh, right now. But like, um, yeah, just this favoring of the classroom. And what I started to learn immediately was that like there were some practical things to it. Like when I used to tutor with students one on one, and we wanted to like do work with some example sentences in French, I would have to write them on a piece of paper and we'd literally pass a paper back and forth. And it was just actually pretty impractical because now like I use a whiteboard and it's in between us already, always. And so instead of like um, the paper we're writing on or the chalkboard at the front of the class, the thing we're using for examples is kind of the interface. It becomes the medium. And we're able to kind of, yeah, like I'm, I'm able to get them to focus a lot more on what, like the, the object between us instead of like there's eyes looking on you. And that really helps when students, not just students, but it, I mean, it helps when you're vulnerable when learning, like to, to not challenge yourself on all levels all the time to kind of compartmentalize that. So like, yeah, like it's not like learning online can solve all the problems, but like, I think I, I realized that like there was nothing magical about classrooms either. Right. Like, like that, like, yeah, there's strengths and weaknesses to being in a classroom, just like being online. And I started to think of digital pedagogy as just uh, more of a different method, trying to like respond to what's really like happening now. And like, there's certainly an aspect of like, uh, you know, who has access to like the the technology, and like who your your students are in that case. Um, but I think that um, there's there's also an aspect of like I'm I'm able to teach students in all kinds of different regions, which makes me as an individual instructor knowledgeable about things that in a classroom I couldn't be because I would need to corral all those people into one space and it would have different biases that are regional and uh yeah cultural that like I actually you know I I teach students of all different ages who live in different continents and uh I teach different languages and so like um 
what I do is kind of really international like education work. And without an online interface, I wouldn't quite be doing it as internationally. I noticed the same thing because like I typically am in an international school, which is a uh, great misnomer. Um, even though like it's an international school because, you know, like the IB curriculum or it's like an American curriculum in a non-American, like non-US country. Um, so yeah, like, or an Australian curriculum outside of Australia or something like that. And I noticed this a lot where it's like the internationalism isn't actually there where it's like they're, the kids are expected to adapt to like American standards or to British standards or someone, someone else's standards, which is also very strange, like having worked in places like China or Taiwan or Italy, which are some of my past ones. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, I noticed that like there's this huge cultural bias um, that you really don't get to explore. Like, I wish I could stop and like work with like my Hungarian students a little bit more and kind of see like how they're developing and their because I do literature. It's like, how are you understanding this little piece of literature? And you can't really stop in the middle of the class because you have so many people around you <laughs> just to be like, hi, how are you understanding this based on like the cultural context in which like you've been growing up and like, how can you explain your differences here? <laughs> So I'm, I'm always envious of that. <laughs> it makes me think of like, so, so I went to school as an undergrad in French and in Spanish. And uh, then in, uh, for my master's, I studied French literature. And so most of my education was not in English, but it was in American universities. So I was taught by educators who had received a different education themselves and were also from all sorts of different countries. And uh, there was a way where, like, I was, you know, interested in studying French, but studying French really isn't a thing. I mean, little kids speak French, like, in France. It's not a thing in itself. So, like, you don't realize that when you start to study a language, you're going to have to fill in what you're studying in that language. And there was a kind of way where it was really open, but also that, like, that meant that... Uh, a lot of times the education I was receiving was very uh, not specifically applicable. So like uh, I learned a lot about a lot of different things and at the same time, like learned more about pedagogy from various examples of my professors instead of kind of like from a system because there wasn't so much like a unified system of it. So in some ways, like I receive an education that looks a lot more French and is a lot more rigorous than American education, but was also a lot more composed and like compiled and a mix of stuff than I would receive in uh, maybe a French system. And so, yeah, like uh, by learning languages, it ended up being a kind of incidental way of like uh, receiving a lot of different examples of education styles. So like I never specifically studied being an educator. I've just been in education and been working with uh, other students. I started being a tutor before I was like, like when I was just a freshman in school. And so like, uh, it was kind of just always something that made sense to me, like that kind of work. <laughs> I have a really similar trajectory as well. Uh, not so much with the uh, lang like teaching language, but more so with like look helping high schoolers with stuff like uh, 
social sciences and literature analysis and like, you know, building up on those things, particularly with poorer communities, uh, <laughs> like, which is what I was doing. So I have a, like this huge range where I got to actually play around with that. But um, this kind of ties into like your reading group, because like some of the stuff that you've sent us, so like we have some of the things on your, our website that you have actually been working on in Spanish, correct? Uh, yes. So some of our, some of the like iterations or some of the like phases that we've had in our study group have been in Spanish also. So that included like um, in the beginning when we were just kind of all getting to know each other, we had a regular, uh, essentially just a, a conversation group from those of us uh, that speak Spanish and those of us that were kind of like looking for more conversational practice. And it was a real informal kind of uh, like conversation group, but like with a theme about politics or like leftist politics. And so we would sort of just, you know, um, like gossip with each other, like essentially, but like uh, in a way that was kind of building relationships over time, but also like kind of carving out some space within the study group that's not just Anglophone. Um, which is, yeah, something I, I personally find myself constantly engaged in is, uh, yeah, kind of combating, uh, English speakers and their sort of, uh, dominance of things. Cause again, like, like, uh, you know, my education, a lot of the things I learned were not in English. And so, but, but, uh, English is my first language. And so I, I have a really good understanding of the English like mind but then also like I can understand like my knowledge is not really in English and I don't I don't prefer to work in English so much and so I think that uh yeah I'm, I'm uniquely positioned to kind of confront that so like another thing we've done was like last summer we had five weeks where we read uh an essay I forget the the author at the moment but it was uh Corrientes del Anarchismo which was sort of just like different, like dividing up the different currents in anarchism, just to kind of understand how that word anarchismo is used in different uh, contexts. So like philosophical anarchism and through like individualism and mutualism and collectivism. And so like, uh, yeah, it was, it was a unique way for us to study Spanish, but then like really study a text. So it was kind of like we met, uh, once a week for five weeks and read a different part. And then we would like uh, discuss it in English. So we're discussing something in Spanish, but having a conversation in English, which also let it be a bit more approachable to people who maybe don't even consider themselves students of Spanish. But again, like we were talking before, like kind of making things more multilingual just generally so that you don't have to be like, uh, you don't have to understand every little thing to kind of mix it up and be part of that discourse or you know witness it yeah I kind of noticed the same issue because like be also being from the United States but definitely not living in the United States and not living in English specifically um and also learning other languages I I often run into the whole idea where it's like a lot of people where I am which is in Slovakia um just be like always kind of being frustrated by how little there is in Slovak and all the ideas kind of coming from the Anglophone world. Um, definitely specifically the U.S. Because <laughs> there's a lot of frameworks that are coming specifically from the U.S. that aren't very applicable. Um, 
And so it's like, it's really difficult to study the languages, but like, how do you see this uh, study group as having a relationship to like praxis or to like practical managers supporting it? Well, so it started just as um, kind of a group of like, like finding different people locally who were interested in having some conversations around strategy or theory. It just seemed like there was a lot going on and like never any space to like talk about those things. And so we started by just uh, reading the text by the uh, Anarchist Federation of Rio de Janeiro, Social Anarchism and Organization. And we read that just as a, group, a study group, the same way, like, I mean, lots of just study groups kind of happen. You know, you pick a thing and you come to reading, talk about a chapter every week or whatever. And uh, from that, it's sort of like more people kind of were interested uh, as we went through that. And I think we, we, we essentially just kind of started over once we were done. Um, cause a lot of people had missed the beginning and it was real informal and yeah, we didn't feel like we had really talked about it a lot. So we actually ended up kind of going through it twice a little bit. And, um, what happened from that was that we finished with a larger meeting specifically about like reflections on it. So we made like a large questionnaire um and had a more specific like sh everyone sharing responses we gave space for people to write responses and um yeah from that we sort of uh had like i like i said the the groups in spanish and then um sort of just some some loose meetings around like uh, maybe a podcast someone saw and was like, does anyone want to get together and discuss this? Or like um, a series of essays. Um, a lot of times just uh, really common things like uh, Malatesta um, and Macno. And we went through uh, a text, the 23 Theses on Anarchism and yeah, talked about like each one, one at a time. And, so different things like that, just to kind of uh, have conversation around these things over time. But what we found is that like, that takes a lot of, um, maybe what I would refer to is actually like defense of that space. That uh, it's just so common for people to go to a study group wanting to know what we're learning. And then when are we going to stop learning? And when are we going to go start <laughs> doing action? And so, yeah, like what we've kind of realized, and especially me as an educator being put in that space is that like, it's a space that needs to be defended, like explicitly. And so we sort of stumbled into that because we were all sort of benefiting from it. We didn't want to let it disappear. Um, but we have come to realize more and more that it's like something that we, we want to maintain and that was lacking in the past. So like we kind of, uh, I've described it as like, we see a lot of activists and radicals and dissidents, all sorts of different uh, people who don't have explicit access to education about radical politics or anarchism or all sorts of different things. And so we just don't, tend to recognize need in ourselves. And so when we need like educational space, we don't really call that need. And we tend to just learn thinking we're going to go out and then like address other people's need with our knowledge. And so, yeah, like uh, I think the, the, the study group has a lot to do with like 
recognizing learning is permanent and that even if you leave that space, you need it to be there so you can revisit and so that you can send other people there. And so that like you can respect that that's a permanent feature. No, I like you mentioned like the end of kind of like the end of learning. Um, this is something that I so often see in so many people or so many groups where um, like specifically study groups or reading groups um, or even just spaces where people come to just talk and try to learn from each other. And it's also like this thing of um, needing an expert or needing a concrete answer and like needing it now. Like I, I have this problem. Can we solve it now? Um, do you often find that you have people coming in or like at the beginning, did you have people coming in looking for like just a concrete answer? Like I have this problem. Can I solve it? <laughs> what do you know? What is your response? Like, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Like, you know, uh, from the beginning of doing it, everyone's just always so in the mode of like, okay, so we studied this thing. So are we going to do this thing? Or like is studying <laughs> this thing, like mean, like we're, uh, we believe in this thing. Like it, it's just like very hard for people to, cause that's another thing about education is that I've come to really like see a distinction between the education and the propaganda in that like the education does have to be able to approach all sorts of ideological objects. And uh, that does mean like when we're thinking of education and again, like putting an educator in an educational space, like, it's like putting a, a guerrilla fighter into a war zone because <laughs> you're putting someone there who's not questioning whether that space needs to be defended. And you don't question whether it needs to be like open to other ideas. It's immediately not dogmatic if you're really committed to the learning part of it. And so like, yeah, people are very quick to to like want to know like so are we subscribing to this and like it's hard to like get into this mode a little like we we're talking about with the di the digital education and the whiteboard in between and to start seeing that that text we're reading as an object between us to talk about instead of a thing we need to like be forming politics around and be reactionary toward that before we can do all of that we need to just understand it really thoroughly and it's hard to like yeah there's a kind of middle space of that where that's not the most you know politically radical thing you can do but that that space needs to be there and it's yeah it's something we've come to like in the study group realize over time because yeah we don't even you know it's not a name we're just a group of people who have been studying and so the it's kind of what I refer to as like a lowercase o organization you know, like it's, it's organization in the sense that it exists there. It's some kind of like connection between people and frequency of meeting over time, but it's not uh, something with a defined limit. And yeah, as we've come to see that space as being more under threat, even from ourselves, you know, even from us participating, because we can be impatient and want to turn the learning into learning for a reason. And I think that that's, that's like what I, what I see us have to combat more than anything is like people want to know why are we learning? And I think that like it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to convey how like if we can figure out why we're learning, then we're not really learning anymore. 
we really have to be able to be in that space and not know what's coming from it and still see that it has value. I noticed this a lot because like, you know, obviously as a teacher, um, for me, it's really a big struggle because the school itself forces me to sit there and justify like, why, like, why are you teaching this book? What is the goal? Or the kids are even sitting there asking me things like, why aren't we learning this whenever like this is what's commonly learned in class like we had this issue with the great gatsby and my students are going like why aren't we learning this this is a thing that's part of the school and it's like well we don't have to learn that we could learn the same concepts from other texts you can read it if you want to that's fine but <laughs> you know and so it's like it's so weird having kind of like um this I don't want to say it's like cognitive dissonance because I really think there needs to be a better term for this. Um, but, you know, like this dichotomy in your head where you're having to kind of combat like that whole idea of like, why are we learning this? What is the purpose versus like, is this something that we just learn so that way we can maybe apply it later or we can see it later? Um, or like, how do you, how do you combat that? Like, what is something that you guys do strategically to try to like, even if you guys are doing it, like have reflections, things like that. I'm, I really try to emphasize like methodology so that like that's a kind of reflective aspect to what we're doing all the time. And that way, like there's a kind of, um, I think in that way, like it's, it's part of how in our study group, we've had different kind of phases of what we've done. And until now, uh, it's been a lot more, like social and free form. And we started just recently this month, uh, our most recent thing that we call militant kindergarten. And it's a more like, uh, it's such a cute name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, it's, it's more of a, a, a stricter kind of path or track, like a, like more of a course that we're trying to follow for several, uh, months in a row of like studying the same text that we've gone, that we've done before. So this social anarchism and organization and uh, yeah, in, in doing that, the idea is again, to kind of establish like kindergarten as a place that it's okay to revisit, but also that like needs to still be there. Like the first graders can forget about it, but like kindergarten still has to be there <laughs> and that like you need kindergarten teachers like people really committed to that like space and that level of learning and who take it as seriously as a college professor takes whatever they're teaching and yeah like I've I think that like um we've already seen it's 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 different in how we're we're approaching the text and trying to really make it an object and like really um yeah, it's a lot more of a rigorous thing than we've done in the past. And uh, yeah, it's kind of set up in a way to like also make a, not just something we could repeat, but to kind of create a course that other people could kind of enact in different spaces. So like I have essentially for the last uh, two years of our study group been working explicitly on the social anarchism and organization text and studying it almost exclusively and through that like a lot of it just being that there's not a lot of resources and especially in english and so um what i see is is 
people wanting to learn more about Especifismo, um, having heard this concept, having like kind of encountered it in other in other spaces, but not having a lot of resources to learn about it. Other than, yeah, for the most part, like this one text, which is a really dense and it's translated. And so there's a lot of like complications just in the language of it. And uh, so, yeah, I've spent a lot of time reading that and trying to come up with ways of turning that into something that can be approached as a group. Because that's something else we've been doing as this study group is that our learning is really like uh, collective all the time. It's been not at all in a format of like, let's have someone uh, teach everybody else about the thing. Um, so it's it's been very like, not necessarily this way of like, everyone's a teacher and everyone's a student, but where it's like, we're only doing it as a group. There is no like kind of not as a group part of it. It just kind of reminds me of like group writing, like whenever you find someone that you're writing with and you just kind of continually throw ideas um, together and have to integrate and build and justify and <laughs> like the way you're describing it, that's how it always, it just makes me feel. <laughs> totally. It's it's much more of a production, like uh, involving everybody than it is just like a, like one person's like voice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like all the different moving parts in the theater where you have everyone, like it has to kind of have something and then you might change roles. <laughs> but you brought up uh, especifismo. So how do you say it in English? Uh, yeah, so that's that's one of the things with that text is specifically trying to address English speakers and how like um, there's this idea that everything we encounter should just be able to be put in English and that maybe things are more complicated than that, you know? And so, yeah, I obviously, you know, dance around in the text and would just do the same thing right now. Uh, Cause I, I, I sort of prefer uh, the untranslatability of it even that like uh, it really makes us have to encounter that as something that's not just like English sizable. And like, um, not just there for us to define. And part of that is like, um, you know, combating, like we were talking before, the, the sort of English dominance of the, the culture and everything. But then also like, there's theoretical reasons for that, where like, a specifismo is uh, an ideology based a lot more on strategy and theory than we're very familiar with, at least in the U.S. context. So we typically only have discussions and disagreements on very ideological basis. And it's typically not based in a kind of theory that's very um, dynamic. The theory ends up being just defined by the ideology. And again, we just end up having ideological debates. And so that's something that we sort of like was initially the thrust of us even getting uh, together as a study group was just that like, where do we talk about strategy? Who knows about strategy? And then we started to realize like nobody knows. And like, it's really hard for our American like minds to figure out like in English, it's difficult to understand what theory is. And yeah, I've had it. I've, I've had a struggle with that in particular is just really insisting on the theory aspect of what we do and so i've 
yeah, I've seen like that, that's sort of, you know, my slant in the space and not to um, um, say the ideological thing shouldn't be there. Because it's definitely something I've learned from Especifismo is kind of taking on the responsibility of having an ideology, but still uh, making that ideology based in strategy and not dogma. <laughs> Which wonderfully leads me to the conversation when we first started talking, um, not on the podcast, obviously, but in a moment when I wish I had been recording, <laughs> we were talking a lot about uh, something that you had sent us for the school revolt being the flyers. And one of them included the idea of utopianism and like idealism. Yeah. And so I'd like to revisit that <laughs> and actually share it more widely because that was lovely. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, one thing is that like, uh, in making, you know, these kind of learning documents like curriculum and like learning tools, you're inherently making something that like people are gonna like have reactions to and like interpret. And that's another thing I've kind of going back to the like defending the educational space, like it's it's difficult in our political climate to make educational documents because they're immediately kind of interpreted through that ideological lens. And so that's kind of what, what that's even referring to is like, um, I think it's defining uh, libertarian socialism as being a theoretical uh, objective, not a utopian or uh, idealistic one. And yeah, like, I mean, I think that um, we had a discussion about this in the study group. We actually talked about, um, uh, it's called uh, fully automated luxury communism. Which, oh, that sounds like Aaron Bastani. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a, yeah, like a Nuvara media kind of a, um, kind of a thing, which, yeah, to Americans is difficult to, to situate exactly. Um, so, so we had some discussions around that and like, um, kind of, and, and again, like something else about the study group is that in a, as an educational space, like, you know, I don't speak for the group or anything. I'm just able to go there and learn and like, uh, use that to refine my own thinking in a way that's really based off of others. So like through our discussions, I really came to think of the utopian, like like you thinking of this utopian idea as being a kind of um imaginary thing and not at all to uh play down the imaginary but that the imaginary is sort of just the coming up with the idea and that our real freedom has more to do with like um putting that idea into the world in action somehow otherwise it ends up being not just an abstraction it's even just kind of a nostalgia because it's not really based in like uh, now. So um, like uh, really distinguishing that from creativity, which I think you could think as being like more of that trying to realize it. It's the difference between like having an idea for making a painting and then actually like working with paint, which is not the idea for making the painting. And so th there's a, a drastic difference there where I think that, yeah, I don't, I don't mean in any way to say people shouldn't have their ideals or their utopian visions, but we always kind of have to think about like, like ask ourselves, like, am I, 
Am I actually thinking about how to communicate and work with other people? Or am I perfecting my ideas regardless of like whether they involve other people or not? And, and that's an important thought to, to constantly be skeptical of ourselves about. Yeah, I kind of notice that like, I see that a lot with people, like they will have this really great idea. And it's not, like, again, it's not to completely denigrate the idea, the, the idea of having an idea. <laughs> what a weird phrase. Um, but it's not to like denigrate this whole idea of being able to come up and conceptualize something that you would like to see or to see that you perceive as being, you know, like the the goal that you would like to achieve. But it is like you kind of miss out on those steps because that was something that like when I kind of took away from like our first conversation, like I was just sitting there going like, yeah, this is something that I find myself often doing where it's like, I'm just kind of thinking about like, what could we, what could it be? And then I'm like, what, where's the goal? Like, where, what am I doing to get there? And I just occasionally keep finding myself in that trap. And it's like, oh, well, I could start working here. And <laughs> like, I could start working on promoting the things that I actually think we should be looking at um, and making sure that, you know, that people have access to stuff that maybe they don't have access to otherwise, you know, sort of like you've been doing with a specific and I could probably start grabbing more Slovak resources or bothering some Slovaks and dragging them in and kind of being like, here are some people that you guys don't typically hear from and you might want to see what's up. <laughs> yeah. Like I, something I think about is like this idea that revolution is not going to be like one really smart person's like super sellable idea, you know, <laughs> and, and that we have to constantly remind ourselves that, that like whenever we we think that's the kind of thinking we're doing to really like remind ourselves like who we are in this context, because that really is like an abstract freedom. That's like, some kind of abstract uh, change or future. It's not really based in now. And so like, for me, it's like through requiring the imagination to be creative, it's like we're, we're admitting like the kind of like uh, priority of now over like some ideal circumstance. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't criticize the utopia per se, but I think that we have to think about like communicating uh, what we're doing to people in spaces where it matters in order to collaborate and not just in order to kind of sell them on our ideas. And so like, yeah, I would distinguish a kind of like, you know, utopia from even just utopianism, because that's really saying like, let's strategize around that destination. And I think that strategizing around like the destination really like prioritizes the imagining over the present situation, which is such a like, it's such a theoretical problem that I don't think it can really be resolved. And so like if people on an individual basis, it's, it's the same as, you know, other biases that we might have, other personal preferences we might have. Like I think that utopian ideals kind of fit into that. Where it's like, okay, I have this ideal, but like, how am I going to turn that into a political opinion? Meaning like an, an opinion that's formed with others versus like a personal opinion, which doesn't really require others. <laughs> that like, you could have personal opinions about politics, but that doesn't make them political opinions. But yeah, it's like, it doesn't mean they're actually like helpful in the grand scheme of things and that maybe they're actually, like, they could also be hindering you because like, you're just 
thinking about that as opposed to like other perspectives. And this is something that, again, like I notice particularly because like, um, since I kind of live in that cross section of the world between the United States and other countries, um, <laughs> it's really one of these things that I often notice where like so often you're hearing this, like this is a good idea for them or like this idea is contextually good for them, but like how do we find, like how do we imagine ourselves uh, in this? Because I'm noticing that there's a lot of like frustration uh, taking place, particularly among like the younger uh, people in like the younger anarchists where I am, where they're just constantly like, hey, like, how do I imagine like what we could look like? Because like, this isn't our reality. Like we're sometimes like we're stuck in that Cold War era <laughs> still. Yeah. And I think that actually really relates to kind of the question about why this, why study groups or like, uh, from, from my perspective, like, uh, textual and like uh, object analysis really matters uh, for for uh, revolutionary politics because I think that like we have to learn to pick things that we can analyze and make analysis of that way we can uh, strategize with our own analysis. So something that's really emphasized in a specifismo is that you need to be producing the theory and the analysis uh, as part of the unity of the organization, that it's not just about a kind of tactical unity or even just strategic unity, but that you need unity of theory and a unity of an ideology that emphasizes this strategizing and not acting without strategy. So like through studying a text like one thing we're kind of getting again to like emphasize the methodology is sort of just how to keep the object as it is and not ideologize it in our study. Because I think that's sort of what you're, you're saying happens is that there's a tendency to um, favor the outcomes that they're having in one place and try to have those objectives. But again, if we put that objective, the goal as being more important than the, being present, we don't realize the uniqueness of our context. And we're setting objectives that are abstract and not based in reality, definitely not in material reality. It, it kind of reminds me because like, um, I think, well, last year, like the Zapatistas had come through Europe. Um, unfortunately, it didn't come through my area. <laughs> um, but anyway, they had, like, one of the big things that constantly is recognized by most people is like that they have this idea of the world within worlds like having your own world like the context of your own space and having multiple worlds within like the one world that we all inhabit <laughs> literally um <laughs> and i kind of noticed that where it's like we often kind of like even in just the u.s leftists or even just the u.s anarchists what i keep noticing is that they're constantly grabbing onto like these examples and like, while I think, you know, stuff like the Zapatistas, like that's amazing, or Rojava has like some really cool stuff happening there. There's just this huge focus of going like, look at these people, we could do that. And you're kind of like, but that context doesn't quite work here because like you're missing like, what is the culture that we might need to build first? Or what is the, like, what things do we need to prefigurate? Like, I'm not entirely sure what the word, like the verb would be for that. <laughs> I, I would even go go deeper and criticize it again, like at a at a theoretical level, where like if, to use some some like 
educational examples, it's like, you know, if you take a teacher who has some piece of knowledge that they think is really important that people should know about, like, I don't know how to read, right? Like they can be very motivated to teach students how to read, but you don't just go into a classroom and use your motivation to force students to know how to read. So like, there's this immediate realization that like, you have to prioritize where students are over where you want them to be. And it's really up to you. Are you trying to teach? Or are you just trying to preach? You know, because those are those are very different. And like, if you already have this thing where you think they're going, and your whole strategy is around getting them there, you're overlooking where they are, which also puts all the learning on them and none of it on you to study where they are. And that that's what like, a, like radical pedagogy is all about is like that you're not in that space to be like, like falsely generous to them and give them like this great knowledge you have. You're there to learn. Like if you're a kindergarten teacher, you're there to learn about kindergarten more and more every year because you're an expert on kindergarten. And like, that's a thing to be an expert on. And like, I think we, we, yeah, we tend not to think about how like being present and prioritizing like now in our strategizing over just aiming at a target is really important for uh, not just being realistic, but actually like accomplishing anything. Like we do have to be like kind of here. And again, like if we come up with some great utopian idea, we still have to just figure out how to translate that constantly. So if that's something that works for a certain individual, I mean, yeah, do that. But you, we have to see that like, that's not a collective strategy. And so then like, you know, an, another, another example is like, uh, cause this, this happens with students that I have, like a student can't just decide what they want to learn because if a student decides what they want to learn as a kind of target, they're not learning anything. So when I have a student that says like, I want to learn Spanish, what does that mean? What does knowing <laughs> Spanish mean? Only someone who actually like speaks more than one language understands how that statement doesn't say enough of what you're wanting. And that you can see how as that student learns more and more Spanish, they'll change what knowing Spanish means to them. And so if we can see how like, that's why our objective needs to be theoretical so that we can keep saying, I want to learn Spanish and keep redefining what that means as we go so that we can say we want libertarian socialism, but not iron out the details beforehand and try to fit to that because we can't turn this reality into a different one. And we can't imagine the details of the next like thing until we're doing that next thing. Sorry, I kind of started laughing at the language example, mostly because I very literally had a discussion with one of my students who's sitting there going like, I really want to learn Italian. Um, that is my goal. It's like, I will learn Italian. I'm like, okay, what about Italian do you want to learn? Like, do you want to learn to read? Do you want to learn to you know, speak? Do you want to converse with people easily? What is it that you're going to go for? Like, what are you... <laughs> Because even for me, I'm going like, my Italian sucks. But <laughs> like, even I'm going like, I know I can't say that. And it's the same thing. Like, I want to learn American literature. And you're kind of like, 
you know, what does that mean? Like, what, what do you qualify as American literature? Uh, which is just like, that's just such a fun exercise to do, like in a curriculum space. Um, and particularly, I see it a lot in ideology as well, where it's like, I hear a lot of anarchists, like, well, I'm going to learn anarchism. And you're like, well, what does this mean? <laughs> which, which branch are you going to look at? Like, would you, or not even just that, just like, what concepts do you want to consider? Again, like kind of going into the methodology to say, like, what is a study of anarchism? Or what is a study of racism? Or like, I think to get into the details of like, uh, actually, like, what are you doing? What is the action that you're engaged in? Is again, like, uh, actually being engaged in a real study instead of an idealized study. And so I think that a lot of times we have trouble situating ourselves in the context that's like actually now because we can't just kind of study the situation as it's going on because we get really like distracted and confused by those utopian ideas. And then like we're in debates with people about that. And so and we also get confused by things like how do I use this? Like why is this even useful? And we just like we get stuck there too. Exactly. So like <laughs> I I find that like for for at least in the US context, it's not just the the uh, theory that's a real challenge. It's it's also what is strategy? Like that that we have such an emphasis on activism which is typically based around tactics that any question around how those tactics fit into a strategy ends up being something very like polemic. And uh, yeah, like there ends up being this kind of like, we can't question when things should happen. Like timing is not an aspect of things because the tactic is good whenever we have like people willing to do the tactic. And so there's also not a kind of like, maybe like a strategic waiting in order to employ the tactic at the best time even there's just sort of the a, best people because like that exactly is that always gets overlooked is like um here when they start trying to get people to do direct action it's like hi like you guys need to be running some interference because like migrants for example are going to be targeted really fast because it's easy to get rid of us yeah and and i think that like uh that really relates to the capacity and how like uh, we tend to, we, we have such a problem of capacity and we think it's just this very personal thing, like, uh, kind of activist burnout. And so like one thing that, that like, it, again, like with the study group is sort of just like learning about how that capacity works in a space that's like, again, like its own independent priority. So like we don't in any way think like what we're going to learn in a study group is going to make a revolution happen. But we've also learned to not just belittle what we're doing and to like value it and not just like, oh, because I'm learning a lot, but that like the space isn't there. We can see now how like, oh, we didn't have any mentors or just anyone else already making a space we could go to so that like. And and again, like kind of thinking of the dig the digital pedagogy is like, I think that we can't think of online things as being organizing, and they're definitely not uh, mobilizing. And so, what we can do online is learn, 
And I think that like, it's an actually like really legitimate way to use this space, if not necessarily like this specific moment, like to know that that's something we can be doing with on online spaces that like, yeah, like we don't have to wait to do the learning. I often tell people like, we don't have to wait until like we get arrested and we're in prison to like start studying. You don't need to like glorify that part of it in order to make learning happen. This all kind of like connects to something that I have been doing a lot of, uh, well, reading and thinking and writing about, particularly with someone else in the APN, um, which is Sonia. And they and I have been sitting here discussing this whole idea of like the, this, the work around care, where it's like these spaces even if they're not like mobilizing or they're not, you know, considered organizing, but they really just focus on things like care work that we really kind of lack. Cause like you mentioned things like activist burnout um, and that these spaces are kind of like these areas where intentional care and support can kind of go back into and, you know, kind of revitalize those communities. Cause like, I kind of noticed that with like the APN for me, which is that every time I kind of go in and start talking to the other people who are involved, that's exactly what I get out of it. Even though like we might be like talking about different things or putting together, you know, stuff like the events that we're doing, like the school revolt, but you know, <laughs> it's a lot of care work. And I think those spaces are really valuable for that. Yeah. And I think that like, it's such a, again, like a kind of taboo to say like, uh, care work is not revolutionary because that sounds like you're saying it's not important and that like we have to learn like what I've found kind of and, and this is where like the especifismo can be really valuable if we can grasp the theory of it where they distinguish political level and social level which is not about like let's categorize all of our orgs or things we do into these two categories but it's about like seeing that like okay from that a therapy space or from that educational space, there could be certain people that have more political affinity with each other. And it's from that flow out of that thing in the middle that they can form more political like uh, organization, a more specific like uh, uh, strategy or like theoretical unity. But that also like, oh, that, that like everybody that comes to that therapeutic space could be you know engaged in all sorts of other stuff especially like maybe that's the most radical thing they do is go to that that therapeutic space and so like it's it's not only more social but it reaches out into another space and so that like every every space like implies a more political level with more unity and a more social level that's more massive more popular and so I found that like in at least like in the US context and I think that this isn't too different in a lot of other places where we have a, a we we are pretty good at making tendency but we have this way of like oh once we've created tendency we really like refine it into this official thing and we want that org to be everything so it becomes the social arm and the political arm and we don't see tendency as a way, like a point to gather, to then move off into these opposite directions, to like go build unity in this, in an ideological space and go use that unity onto a social space. And like, uh, yeah, so the, I think that, that in a similar way to like therapy spaces, 
this educational tendency is something that like isn't only important for anarchists and that I think anarchists should be encouraging other tendencies to establish as well that like it should be because again that that starts to create other levels of networking and federalizing that are also of tendency right that educators of maybe different tendencies have a reason to be communicating with each other and sharing uh, learning resources and yeah like I, I think that it's okay for us to see tendency as not being an end and being okay being in organizations that dissolve in the name of progressing the flow of militancy and social change kind of in opposing directions i think this is kind of funny because like i literally put uh my own writing out and i was just talking about how things like organizations need to kind of recognize that there are things like longevity you can have short-term and long-term longevity and you have to know like what is the goal of this thing or do you plan for it to be a long-term thing and it it's okay to start something and be like hey this is only going to last for like a month because like this this is as long as we need it for right now or you know like try to build off of it and like recognizing that you can actually get out of that because that's something i keep noticing in like different organizations um particularly like labor unions uh, <laughs> being my favorite to kind of recognize this where they only seem to have like a very narrow focus and while i understand that they have these narrow focus like focuses um but like while i understand that they have these kind of narrow focuses that they're going with it occasionally just kind of misses out on like these really key moments of like building additional networks off the side or kind of helping to branch out to you know bring in not just bring in more people for sheer numbers, which often feels like what the goal is, but like to kind of actually build a community off the side that to show that like they care, um, you know, like doing things again, multilingual structures where it's like you start building in instead of just doing things in one language. And for me, the one language tends to be German, which yes, I can handle, but not everyone in my union is able to handle German because they don't speak it. <laughs> and so like you can sit there and offer these spaces where you're like, maybe we could learn and teach and not just teach, but you know, like informal conversation and help people learn like other languages. Like we could learn English or Slovak or whatever the other stuff is. And so like you see that kind of tendency in those spaces to not recognize how they could even help build these resources. Yeah, and and I think like to a certain extent it's it's again like uh some of this I, I see a lot in in English, not that like uh in French or in Spanish this is some solved problem, but I think like approaching the theory is a little bit more uh, something we can do like uh Maybe maybe that more people understand or that the language kind of permits because like in English, sort of the only thing we can do is criticize the unions as organization. We can't criticize their strategy, which again is really all that you're trying to do is say that like they need a strategy that incorporates them into the real situation that exists instead of like idealizing a situation and waiting for it to exist or hoping everyone else takes care of that or I don't know whatever like way we want to talk about it but the point is like like needing to figure out a strategy for working with other groups and other levels of like uh social life because they just do exist that like there's not this there's not this luxury of 
designing your strategy in an ideologically exclusive space. So that's something else that, that comes out of, out of Especifismo is not only that like real transformation happens on this social level with uh, like mass movements and popular movements, but also that like the uh, like, like, so not, not only that, it, that the transformation happens there, but also that like you have to be uh, encouraging that, that transformation above your like kind of growing your political group that the reason to organize politically is to progress the social transformation, not in order to like have this kind of equal power things rising. And it's, I think, something that's really distinct from Especifismo and cadre organizing is that the point is to strengthen militants like uh, in social engagement, not to strengthen militants for the sake of an organization gaining any sort of uh, authority only like clout in the sense that like they're present in the struggles uh, that are there. And that kind of leads me to, um, I want to segue quite a bit, <laughs> which not really quite a bit because we were talking about like the labor unions and such. You told me once before that you wrote about gig work <laughs> for the IWW. Yeah. I would like to visit that conversation. Um, quite a bit because I think it's a very interesting thing to think about, particularly with regards to teaching and definitely the spaces both of us kind of embody. Yeah. So like, uh, I, I have, have written before for the, um, industrial worker and, uh, also submitted some articles for the, uh, Solidaridad, which is the Spanish publication for the IWW. And, um, I've also submitted some different ideas like of like kind of flyers and pamphlets related to um, informing consumers about like gig work. And yeah, like from a lot of, not just from the IWW, but from other groups as well. Like uh, I've, I've sort of received pushback of those things being kind of liberal and like um, characterized as being ethical capitalism. And what I've really like struggled with because like essentially like as an online teacher, like I, I'm a gig worker and I'm not supposed to realize that kind of because of like the, the, the way that my clients work or because of like how I'm sitting at home instead of like in my car delivering something. Um, I'm not supposed to see that I'm like paid for one task at a time. And so, like, I have struggled because also, like, you know, as an educator, I'm also, like, uh, a professional in a sense, but, like, totally divorced from other professionals, which means I'm expected to practice this kind of really developed profession without ever coming in contact with others. And uh, that's that's also why, like, the gig work thing is so significant because, like, yeah, like, I'm I'm in some isolated space where I'm not allowed to communicate with my clients about our, like, working relationship. And without them sort of having knowledge about how to reach out to me outside of, like, given platforms, there's no way for, like, the worker to be organizing anything. Because, like, I don't even ever meet another educator. Which is part of why, like, I reached out to the APN because I saw that, like, 
oh, these are at least other, you know, educators like um, with similar ideology, like uh, organizing just for dialogue. And that like that seemed really uh, like a worthwhile, not just political endeavor, but even like professional like uh, endeavor. And so, um, yeah, like I, I think that we don't realize how isolated that is and that we're in a situation where we're depending on the consuming, the consumer point of the, this like, you know, production, distribution and consumption, like they really have to realize like, oh, I need a tutor. I'm paying twice as much as they're getting paid. But unless they can ask, like, how much do you get paid or tell the the tutor how much they're paying? We don't even know anything. <laughs> so there's nothing that there's no workplace to organize. There's no coworkers to even like commiserate with, much less agitate. There's there's none of none of these traditional uh, syndical syndicalist kind of methods work in this digital space. And so for gig work, I see it in a way that involves like action on the part of consumers a lot more. It requires somebody getting a delivery uh, from an app service and then saying to that person that delivered it, like, Hey, if I wanted to get something delivered in the future, could I contact you directly? And spreading that information with other people in their neighborhood that like, I've got a, like a connect with someone who delivers directly and we just pay them a flat fee. And so the consumers pay less and the, the uh, workers get more money and you just cut out the middleman so that we learn to start using those apps as ways to find who to connect with. And then we pull that relationship off of the app. And it's, it, to me, that's, that's in no way a kind of promotion of capitalism. It's recognizing that this transaction is happening and we need to make it based on a more human interaction that sees a human on both sides of it. And I think the syndicalists are so based on this concept of workers that they really see a clear distinction between like when you're at work and when you walk out the door. And it's just not there. It's not there for consumers and it's not there for workers. And I don't think they recognize either like that. Well, it's not to say that they don't recognize that like all work effectively is taken off site. Like there are jobs, obviously, where like the majority of the work is done within certain sets of hours. But then you have like this concept of like some people still doing little bits of overtime at home, you know. Um, but I also feel like occasionally they don't really recognize like even teaching as the in the structures that it has, where it's like really the only people I've ever come across who understand uh, how uh, schools function and how teaching functions within a school have been other teachers or have been children of teachers or, you know, people who are really connected to teachers um, who really understand and get how it works, where it's like, you know, I might have my normal, like I might have two months off, but those two months off aren't actually off because I'm doing, you know, professional development and stuff like that. And then also all the grading that I'm having to do or having to read books that I might not want to read in the middle of summer. But also just like it kind of fails to recognize that the different places in which teachers exist and the different structures that are being utilized right now, where it's like international schools are probably one of the uh, least acknowledged areas of like an actual school building <laughs> in terms of like learning and we embody like we 
say like we have much of the same issues where it's like kids are paying exorbitant fees for tuition and the parents and the kids have absolutely no idea how much we get paid so like i like i accidentally let it slip to my students how much i was being paid in the context of a conversation where i was like maybe i should go be a dentist uh they probably get <laughs> for all the teeth I'm pulling in terms of like this conversation, because it was a very quiet class. And they're like, well, they do make like very little money, like 45,000 euros. And I'm like, well, I'm at 24 guys. <laughs> so, and that was the first time they actually had come into contact with recognizing that how much they are paying and how much the teachers are getting um, for that school. And it really is an important thing to understand like where they're going like you get paid that little but like you're doing that much work <laughs> yeah that that relates like a lot to i mean part of how i started doing online uh work was um trying out all sorts of different ways of making being an adjunct uh something i could survive on so i went through <laughs> iterations of you know making that my main source of income and then having like supplements or having like something else be my main source of income and then having that be a supplement. And yeah, this kind of way where like, in order to do that work, you need all of this education. Uh, so like in the US, like we have a real, like like a very similar problem with the adjuncting where like you've created these, these people who have like um, the specifications to do the work, but the work is itself like so compartmentalized. So like not only do like... Uh, adjuncts not get tenure or anything like that but they're actually only getting you know like a four month or a five month contract at a time and that that means like yeah they have the summer off which means like not being paid even a little bit they don't even do them the justice that the they do in other school where they divide the 10 months by 12 <laughs> they they actually just don't pay you for three months of the year and so and then every semester you don't know what courses you'll get because it's like a computer program making sure the most seats are filled and like sections are canceled and adjuncts are in the same place that like uh undergrads are in where like they sign up for a class and then it's just gone and so <laughs> you don't you don't even know how much money you'll make the next semester you know and it's wild because undergraduates don't actually like it's not to say that they are ignorant but like they don't really recognize this as it's happening because like it's a system that is so obfuscated behind so many other levels and layers and systems and <laughs> yeah in in a lot of ways like i feel like i'm at an age where it sort of happened as i was going through school that that was becoming this thing that was becoming so part compartmentalized that uh yeah you couldn't you couldn't guarantee any way to live off of that so like uh, most of the time adjuncts are either like living off of almost no money whatsoever or they're working two or three times as much as they should be one semester because it's the only way to make the the year work and so like that's a big part of how i ended up doing online work and so i don't see the adjunct situation as being too much different than the gig workers because i think that in a lot of ways like at least in the education industry like they're they're very similar and yeah like just this kind of compartmentalizing things no one has to recognize that like people live off of that income so no one has to take responsibility for the entirety of that person's livelihood every job just assumes like well some other little thing will cover that extra 25 percent of what they need 
and it's not on us to do. And I, I, when I was an adjunct, it, I wasn't even in any way trying to like unionize people or anything, but just kind of talking to people about like uh, how maybe we should uh, give the person who's been here the most, like a full schedule of classes and someone else should just like actually take a like less, you know? And it was, it was just kind of even talking about that was a very upsetting thing to certain people. And to me, it was like, why should all of us have part-time jobs here? Like, why does no one get a full-time <laughs> job here? And what are we working for if it's always going to be this kind of like 50% or 75% of a paycheck? What, like, it's just a very confusing thing. Like, shouldn't someone just take less or go get a different job? So someone's getting at least like a whole job. And like, because I see how the system doesn't want that because they want to have like, oh, you've got an open space if we need. Or you're always desperate, so you're never going to say no if we need a summer school class taught. Or if that class gets canceled, you still can't just be so upset, you'll say no next time. Yeah, I kind of feel the same thing because, like, my my job this year started off with, like, being told, like, oh, you have these uh, five classes out of six. So I have one prep hour in a day. And literally, that was how we started the year, going like, oh, well, full time is five classes, but then like, we don't have enough students for this one class, so now we're going to cut it down to four. So you'll have to be on part-time schedule. And so I'm sitting there going like, but I can't, I can't afford to live on a part-time job. And a part-time job is only one class hour lower than... <laughs> my full-time job so you're kind of sitting there having to be like oh I hope I get something else <laughs> but it was just yeah it's just one of those most ridiculous things where it's like the uh the gig work of education and is probably one of the most missed area like one of the most missed areas that people kind of it's harder to see and I think that especially the um the professionalization I I think you can part. You can see the way that, that the, the industry creates a kind of surplus of qualified labor, even within that industry. So it's a similar concept to like what you might call like this, the surplus army of labor, like in the economy as a whole. But even within education, we're producing like, uh, like a surplus within that. So that like you, you uh, can, they can guarantee there's somebody to do that. They, they can guarantee that there's someone who will take that that class. And mm -hmm. it makes it so that, like, they and, – and, again, like, they're using computer-generated like uh, data to know exactly how many classes to offer so that they make exactly the most <laughs> money as possible. So they're, they're not offering too many. It's not like anyone's ever getting a class that, like, works out in favor of the, the teachers. It's always in the favor of the school and of the industry. And so having uh, teachers who are just desperate for one more class or for being full-time in any way, even for just one semester or one year, that turns into this like way of guaranteeing like you won't get any agitated teachers. You won't get any like teachers who can threaten to change things. And then when you combine that with, you know, how moralized like the work is, it's, it makes it really hard to like figure out how to, how to do anything about how you see you're you're just obviously being exploited and like you know left out 
it just reminds me like I was having a conversation with someone again going back to that cognitive dissonance thing where you're and I was kind of questioning like is cognitive dissonance actually something that is real or is this actually something that is like I am feeling distressed because like my ethics and my values are being directly constantly persistently contradicted in the work I have to do or the work I'm requested to do or the systems I'm in. And that just like, <laughs> like that was just something that I just got so stuck on and I'm, I'm still kind of stuck on. <laughs> I, I think that this has come up a, a bit in our, in our study groups and it's something I've, I've learned a lot from, from Paolo Freire in the pedagogy I love of the him. impressed. <laughs> and yeah. So, so like, like uh, the idea that the the teaching being a an inherently ethical work, because yeah, it's not ideal. I mean, a lot like we were talking about before with the utopian thing is that like you can't practice teaching in a serious way as a utopian like teacher. And so, if you want to practice teaching, you've got to like kind of like get your hands dirty, right? Like you have to like be a part of systems that aren't ideal and you have to like work in situations that aren't ideal. And again, that, that really relates to the, the educational tendency that I'm talking about needing to be established is that like there need to be people who are willing to stay in that space, even though it's not perfect. And even though it's like, yeah, like it's not a space to like build unity. It's a space to learn. And that like, that's different. And that it's okay for every space to not be so uniform that there need to be uh, places that are carved out that are very uh, have, have not only distinct functions, but also like um, distinct priorities. And yeah, like it can just be very hard to defend that from, from a sort of uh, onslaught from all kinds of things, including like, like uh, moralizing but definitely not limited to that. But I think that a lot of a lot of people only interact in educational spaces for moral reasons. And I think that like it, from a critical perspective, we have to say that's not getting their hands dirty enough. Like they're not really risking it on their part. Because part of this is like, yeah, you have to be able to come out of a class that you did and say like, what didn't work? And if you're not willing to do that, you are just like we said before, preaching right? You're, you're concerned with like what you're presenting and you're not concerned with learning. Because learning is meeting those students where they are. Now, I would say that moralizing element is probably the easiest one to, it is the easiest one to manipulate because you always see it all the time where it's like, if you, um, what was one of the examples we had where it's just kind of like, well, we shouldn't tell the students this because like we care about the students. So like we shouldn't let them know of anything bad that's going to happen until much later down the road when they're more prepared and you're kind of going like, how will they be more prepared? <laughs> and like that kind of cognitive dissonance right there of going like, well, there's a lot of change happening. We're not going to let you know until much later when we've dealt with the change. Um, but also just that whole idea of like everything we do is just so easy to manipulate where it's just like, you know, all this, the student thing is always like, we're doing it for the kids. Um, 
the constant refrain that you see in like the news or the constant refrain that you always hear people using like you are there for the kids like this is why we can pay you less you're there for the kids this is why you can take on more work and it is such a really easy way to manipulate people particularly because as you said so many people enter the field just going hey i am here for the kids like they're kind of even indoctrinated into that from the very beginning yeah and so like when you think about you know uh education on a more like political level it's you can see how like we we have a hard time being creative about how to do that it's not just this same kind of thing of of like uh we have this uh, I'm I'm more experienced or more knowledgeable and I'm going to like uh, conceptualize a track or a path everyone's going to go on and I'm going to know like what it's like at these different points because I've already been through them. I think <laughs> that that all of that kind of thinking of learning as not being present is is really like patronizing but it's also like a, a, a kind of not trusting other people. Like I think an important part of like a, an actually like revolutionary educational tendency is not being afraid of sharing information with people and like really like you don't know what they're going to do with it. And that if you already have these kind of parameters, like, well, I don't want them to take it this way and I don't want them to take it that way. Like you're not there to be like helping people learn. And I think that like, uh, yeah, that, that seems like, like uh, obvious in our conversation now, but in practice, like it gets very difficult to stay disciplined to that. And so, yeah, like this idea that teachers are like there for the kids, they're never allowed to be there for their profession or like for the practice of education. And again, that, to me, that's that kind of like dismissing that the kindergarten teacher stays in kindergarten. I think that the rest of the world has this idea like, oh, they stay in kindergarten because they can't move up. Yeah. But, <laughs> but like, no, like someone stays in kindergarten because the object they're interested in learning more about is kindergarten and that space and like seeing that that should exist. And yeah, I mean, even in an educational level, like seeing that like, no, kindergarten didn't just always exist. At some point, someone decided like, maybe we should send five-year-olds to a place like this and like, <laughs> yeah, maybe it won't always exist. Maybe something else will come along. But this idea that like, like, um, the way things are just is the way that they are. And like, instead of kind of investigating, like, how does kindergarten keep happening? You know, is it the same as it was when I was there? No one's really thinking about that. They just know they went there and they're done. Or preschool. <laughs> yeah. And and so like I, I think people people have this idea like that's what an educational tendency would be is like oh yeah we'd have a study group so we could learn and then we would go and yeah. the idea being that like okay but like what about if someone else wants to learn that or like what if we want to like say this is so important we should revisit it and like hear other people's perspectives in like years to come and that's that's a difficult thing to like really really think about being valuable if you always are only learning in order to translate that learning into like uh, value or like uh, immediate action, you know? No, like I definitely see that with so much of the, just so many, so much of the way that we tend to learn things. And I even, it's one of those things that I even struggle with myself still, like when I'm teaching, because like I, I very much know that as I was teaching one of my more off topic classes, which is a uh, psychology class, 
Um, <laughs> and I'm sitting there going through this stuff, like even going like, I don't want to use a section of the book because, you know, instead of looking at the book as an object, but I'm sitting there thinking like, okay, I know how they're going to take this. And, and also trying to remind myself like, hey, well, they might not take it that way. Or I could give like my perspective as well. And like, we could sit there and learn back and forth. So that way, like they're reading the same text and they might have questions that I didn't think that they would have because they're other people. <laughs> yeah. Like, like I think it's, it, that, that really gets into the ethics. It's like, you can have the, the morality of like, yeah, I think other people are equal and I think that they're, you know, have freedom. But then in practice, like that's not just this prescription of what you do. And so like, to me, like that distinction is also that like ethically you make mistakes. It means that sometimes you don't do it right and you do indoctrinate them and maybe in ways you don't mean to. And that like being an educator is like taking that responsibility, seeing when you do that wrong and trying to get better at it. And like, yeah, like I, I think that it's it's really hard the way that like there can be this assumption also about education that like, oh, I've learned that. I'll save them time. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll get them to jump ahead on this track that I'm imagining. Not realizing that the track is imagined. It's not real. <laughs> so like there's, there's this aspect of like trying to get people to jump ahead is really missing what that even means and how jumping and learning is just some abstract thing. If we can't get to like what that means with other people Maybe we're not talking about anything. Maybe like we're we're just wishing that that's how it would work. But like we can't we can't assume that like somehow our learning saves other people learning because that's not the point of learning. It's not to save learning. Like oh well now you don't have to learn because I learned. I've I've put it in this jar to hand off to you. Like to I've preserved it. Here you go. Yeah, and, <laughs> and kind of kind of on that same subject is it's like learning is still there to be done all the time. It's not this thing that like we have to do right this second or else, because that again implies that there's already this target. Like oh there's a thing over there I need to go get, and that's not <laughs> that's not learning. You know like. Not in a way that like uh, is actually liberatory or like revolutionary in any way. That's just kind of you know learning about the way things are, which is I would argue something we all actually know really well. We just don't know how to like uh, get past it, <laughs> right? And and some of it's that like we we get confused by like what we want it to be like and what it's really like, and yeah, so so like you know, for me, especially with, with, like, with education, like, I really emphasize things like we're saying, like, like the text, like the object in between the, because I think it develops a methodology that really empowers people to, like, pick new objects to, like, sit and look at and, like, learn about instead of kind of looking for authorities, but also, like, assuming that certain objects are worthy of, like, analyzing or like are the important ones and other ones aren't being able to even question whether or not those things are things that are to you valuable or if they could be valuable to someone else exactly <laughs> yeah yeah because like it's it's like the the context means so much that like it's okay to to like see that that's really important to someone else and how they interact with it and see that it's not important to you and it doesn't mean there's nothing to grasp out of like that same object it's just different and yeah, it's, I think that that makes it also like 
like a, it's, it's helpful in, a, in an educational space that's trying to create some, like, like, again, like thinking of this educational tendency as something to defend. I think that that's a really important thing, having text, because text is also a kind of space that we can revisit over and over again, and it doesn't exhaust itself. So in the same way that you could meet at a park, you can meet around a text. You can meet around an object. And studying now requires us maybe getting better at picking objects to study now. But that, that's, that, that would be like, you know, the next step of that. That would be like first grade, you know. Would, it, that, would, <laughs> that would be the thing that comes after like learning to study the, the text as an object is learning to study new objects as objects that are current and like present in your space. And being able to recognize an object. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Because yeah, everything seems the same, and we can't we can't break even the one object out of it, you know. So even yeah, picking the things to analyze as being individual things that's a very again like it requires a theoretical analysis that like dogmatic ideology just doesn't provide us because it's already just telling us what things are as soon as we like see a new thing we just want to know what's the name of it how do you define it <laughs> and it's not dynamic enough we're being very like archaeology 101 where we just kind of like here's this thing what is it called what is its name what is its purpose done <laughs> yeah yeah and I, I guess like you know this comes into like all the the sort of eclectic education i received is like i was trained in uh, narratology and semiotics and how to really like sit with a thing for a long time, which is a big part of like what I've gained from the study group on a personal level is that like having other people that want to re-engage with the same object uh, more than once for me is really uh, ideal because I can sit with that object for a long time and like study it in, in like a lot of depth. And so, yeah, like it's given me a uh, space to use things I'm, better at so that like I can help other people be better at other parts of what what they're good at that I'm maybe not <laughs> yeah, that's the part that I also find like sometimes even myself like I'm just kind of sitting like all right I'm a little impatient <laughs> but then I also have to sit there and remind myself like it's okay to be impatient but you need to kind of sit with this you need to actually engage with what you're working with <laughs> yeah like I, I think about it how like um there's certain things that you can't, it's unavoidable that we have to like dive deep into and it's really dense stuff to learn or like really like uh, new things that no one's like uh, analyzed before and that we don't get to choose that part and that work might not be for everybody. So if like what you're really good at is, is a theory, then you need to be trying to like learn how to communicate with people who are not as good at that. And if what you're not as good at is, is theory, then you need to be like, like learning to communicate with some people that are working on theory because there's no way around that being part of it. But I don't think like we, uh, you know, thinking of the educational tendency is like, we just, we're not ready for people to be good at kindergarten teaching and not good at every <laughs> aspect of revolution, you know? But like, will the kindergarten teachers be able to take up arms? And like, you know, like it, it turns into this thing that like, oh, but like, what if the Do kindergarten, they have to? <laughs> yeah, what if the kindergarten teachers like have to use their like real faces? And it's just, it's kind of this, like, no one, no one can envision like how different like expertise is needed. 
and that we need to start learning not like, oh, I'm jealous of their expertise or their expertise is valuable, so I need it too. And mm -hmm. instead saying like, that's someone with that. Now I don't need to work on that. I can work on this thing and we can work mm -hmm. on like how to make them interact. Kind of going back to the IWW and like not criticizing union organizing at all. But again, like, like it's the strategy and like being able to like incorporate that into other kinds of organizing instead of always like needing to subsume those organizing efforts into like a, a radical union it, because, because that ends up being like this kind of contest of like, Oh, but which one's bigger, which one's pulling more <laughs> and really being able to see like, no, like they all need to be there and we need to figure out how to like encourage that flow into lots of different directions. It always just feels like something that comes straight out of like the more neoliberal side of organizing where it's like we must have the one organization and it must can grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and they're like no we don't actually need the one organization we can have this and we can have that and like maybe they can interact like they can help each other out but like they need to support back and forth <laughs> And what we're not, we're not seeing the development of the, you know, the external organizations or the external groups or collectives or anything else that needs to kind of surround, you know, something like, for example, the IWW in order to even, you know, get off the ground to really push some of the goals that we're told are like some of the stated goals. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think like for, with the especificismo, something I've really learned and that I want to like, keep kind of spreading to others is this way that like there's a strategy around seeing how like us as individuals as individual militants can be uh like points of this ethical dilemma you know like yeah you're in these two different spaces and it's on you to figure out like how to not like uh fulfill how to, how to make sure you fulfill your engagements in both spaces and to not engage in things that you can't fulfill as seeing that like like you really are conflicting yourself in in doing the real work that has to be there just like we're talking about a teacher in a classroom is that if you want to keep that pristine ideal thing you can't step foot in the classroom because as soon as you do it's not that pristine thing anymore and so like seeing that that's what like that's what militancy is is that like getting your hands dirty and having some like risk and even like yeah like culpability of mistakes that you make and like commitment to keep working on them. I think that like that, that, like you said, like that liberal idea of this is also just about it being real pristine. So a big part of that one organization is that it's good at public relations. It's good at <laughs> looking good. It, it looks nice and shiny and perfect. And everything that's a problem is supposed to happen behind the scenes. And I think like what especificismo is, is like describing is a similar idea where like that, that kind of dispute happens behind the scenes, but it happens behind the scenes in a, like a specific group, a group that's designed specifically to have those debates in order, like the way I kind of think about it to like unburden those more social spaces so that those debates don't always have to happen in the same space. Because I think that that's a real weakness of strategizing around like large uh, parties and uh, large organizations is that they, they really require that one space to be a space for social debate and for mm -hmm. political unification. 
And it's, it's a complicated thing to make that work in one space. And like, again, like this theory of especifismo is like, let's keep that flow going in both directions. Let's like build that unity out of that space. And let's like keep making the social level grow more. And I think like, like, yeah, the, the lots of times orgs like the IWW or in the U S like the DSA, they end up kind of acting as like uh, blockades on social level growth and on political growth because they don't let it get specific enough and they don't let it get popular enough. It's in some middle space, which again, isn't a problem in itself. But if our strategy is around like this middle or middle level org is the be all end all, we're making not real strategy. Strategy is so hard for us to pinpoint what that is. And we, we end up talking about tactics and ideology almost every time. I'm so happy to have had the chance to talk with Carl. This conversation really gave me a lot to think about in a lot of areas, both in organizing and learning. If you liked what you heard or are curious to read more, feel free to check out How Do You Say a Specifismo in English and check out his other work in our resources page. And if you want to hear more from us at the APN, go to our website at anarchistpedagogies.net where you can find more information and links to our social media. Again, all links will be provided in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.